0: unbridled, undirected, zeal for God will advance a kingdom, just not God's. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Now verse 43, And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. Notice here, this passage turns on a dime and contrast the tenderness of Jesus two verses ago to the sternness of Jesus now. I mean, this absolutely stopped on a dime. Jesus, full of compassion, full of mercy, full of tenderness, touches the leper. And now He sternly charged him and sent him away at once. Mark uses some language here that's very clear and very straightforward. The word translated sternly there comes from the word that means to grunt or to snort. So literally the picture that you should have in your mind here is maybe of a bull snorting. So Jesus sternly charged him. Jesus is not mincing words here. His words to the leper will be clear, they will be firm, and they will be direct. He sternly charged him and sent Him away at once. That's ekbalo. That's the same word for cast out. Mark has used this word to describe the casting out of demons. Remember, he also used this word to describe the casting out of Jesus into the wilderness. And so we talked about that. This has been a few Sundays ago, but we talked about how that word ekbalo, it means to cast out, but it doesn't always mean to cast out against one's will, as in the sense that Jesus was compelled to go into the wilderness for His temptation. But what it does always mean is it means a forceful sending out. So Jesus sternly charged him, and then Jesus was direct and forceful in sending him out. He sent him away at once, verse 44, and he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone. So there's a double negative there. English is the only language I'm familiar with that doesn't like double negatives. Double negatives for us are a no-no, but... Other languages do like double negatives. And in fact, when there is a double negative, it emphasizes the negativity. So here Mark uses a double negative. Don't say nothing to nobody. And under no circumstance, say nothing to no one. But go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Jesus is no lawbreaker. Even though he has the authority to set aside the letter of the law and say, come into my presence, leper. Nevertheless, Jesus is the perfect law keeper. And He will, in this instance, there's no reason to set aside the law here. So Jesus says to him, keep the letter of the law and go and show yourself to the priest. So this was, would have been in Jerusalem, a journey of 90 miles. And He says, go and show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices there. So Leviticus 13 and 14, as we said, cover all of that. We won't go through all of that in detail. But just something that's worth pointing out here is that if he does go to Jerusalem, we don't know if he ever went to Jerusalem because we're going to see in just a moment his disobedience. So we don't know if he ever made it there. But whatever leper did go to Jerusalem for the ritual ceremony that of one who had been cleansed of leprosy, it was an intricate ceremony. It was eight days long. And so it began on the first day when someone would come and they would appear to have been cleansed from leprosy. And so what would happen, the priest would look at them and examine them and say, it does look like you've been cleansed of leprosy. And on that day, they would offer a sacrifice. Then there would be a waiting period of seven days. And on the eighth day, he would return or she would return. And if it was indeed true that the, the leprosy had been cleansed, there would be another sacrifice of three lambs. But we won't go through the second sacrifice. But the first sacrifice is worth seeing because it's just such a beautiful picture of the gospel. The first sacrifice on the first day was a sacrifice of two birds. They would bring two birds and they would take the first bird and they would kill it. And they would take the second bird and dip it in the first bird's blood and set it free. Isn't that a wonderful picture of the gospel? The the bird that lived lived because it was dipped in the blood of the bird that died and then that bird was set free. Isn't that a wonderful picture? of our gospel, of us who are covered in the blood and set free because Christ was the one who died on our behalf. So he says, Go and show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, verse 45. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town. If ever there was one who began well and ended poorly, This leper is him. The boldness, the audacity, the the model faith that he just demonstrated moments ago seemed to all be done with a disobedience that equals the boldness of his faith. As audacious as was his faith, just as audacious is his disobedience now. So if ever there was one who began strongly and ended badly, this is he. So notice in his disobedience here, Jesus has said very firmly, Jesus is not mincing words, say nothing to nobody, but go to the priest, offer the sacrifices, keep your mouth shut. Now, why would Jesus want him to not talk? Again, we're going to come across this time and time again in Mark's gospel. And the best way, just to put it succinctly for for our purposes today, the best way to look at this is just simply crowd control. Remember what just happened in the previous episode. All the healing... This created such a a clamor for Jesus that Jesus says, I am no longer able to accomplish my purpose. My purpose is preaching. My purpose is teaching. And now the crowds are inhibiting that. And so Jesus is just simply saying, let's keep this under control because I know when word gets out, it's going to inhibit my ability to do what I came to do, which right now is to preach. So for for these purposes right now, it's just basically crowd control. Jesus doesn't want people clamoring for miracles. The Roman uh, government becomes aware of what's going on. All these people get involved. Jesus doesn't want that yet. So He says, say nothing to nobody. But we're told, verse 45, He went out and began to talk freely. That's the typical word for preach. That's the standard word in the New Testament for preach. So He went about and, and began preaching And apparently the leper was a pretty good proclaimer because he was quite successful because we're told he went to talk freely about it and to spread the news. The word there that Mark uses literally means that he filled the land with this news. He filled the area. Everybody heard about this. He was efficient and effective at disobeying. He did it so well that not just a few people heard about it, but everybody heard about it. It spread like wildfire. So his disobedience is rivaled or his faith is rivaled only by his following disobedience, which is a stunning, likewise, turn of events, the second turn of events in the story. And notice the result of his disobedience. Verse 45, he went out and began to talk freely, spread the news, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. That's the sixth time that word has showed up. Aramos in the Greek, which is wilderness or desert places. Mark has used that word six times in chapter 1 to talk about where it is that John does his ministry, where it is that Jesus went to be baptized, where it is that Jesus went to be tempted and tried, where it is that Jesus went to be alone to pray, and now where it is that Jesus has to be as a consequence of the lepers or the former lepers disobedience. So notice once again here, just the gospel is woven so beautifully into the story because that is the gospel. That's the gospel of the Messiah who traded places with us. Because of our sin, He traded places with us. He took on Himself our iniquity. Going back from the first verses of chapter 1, He was plunged underneath the waters of confession in His baptism. He took upon Himself our iniquity so that we could take the righteousness that was his. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 21. He became sin so that we would become the righteousness of God. Or look at Hebrews chapter 13 verses 12 and 13. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. So Jesus, as a result of this man's disobedience, he now has to be the one who's out in the desolate places. It was the leper who had to remain in the desolate places. But now because of his disobedience and because of Jesus's mercy, Jesus is now cast out, if you will, put out into the desolate places, into the wilderness places because of his disobedience. Look at 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 8 and verse 9. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that, by, so that you by His poverty might become rich. We see this woven throughout the New Testament. The gospel that tells us in order for, to secure our regeneration, to secure our forgiveness, Jesus had to take upon Himself our sin. He had to trade places with us. He had to go to the cross that was ours. He had to die the death that was ours so that we could trade places with Him and be the righteousness that was His. And this is a beautiful illustration of that. This trading places, this gospel of the the Messiah who trades places with us, one of the things that that should do for us is that should be an incredibly powerful motivator to godliness, an encouragement, a motivator to godliness in our lives. Because if we really grasp the gospel that tells us when God forgives sins, He doesn't put it away. He doesn't make it disappear. When God forgives sins, He does it because Jesus traded places with you and He was punished for you. When that gospel really takes root in your heart and your heart really comprehends my sin was what he became. That's a powerful motivator. When in the face of temptation, we can say to a heart that truly grasps that and truly understands that, if I commit this sin, if I fall into this sin, this is what Jesus must be. This is what he must be. This is what he must die for. That's a powerful motivator for godliness in our lives. We read in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Therefore, Peter's going to go on to say, live holy lives, put away sinfulness. So it's a powerful motivator. But it's also a great reminder for us. Because this leper who receives the clear commands from Jesus, yet he disobeys them, we must ask ourselves, just kind of step back for a moment and ask yourself, why would he do that? Why would this leper disobey the clear commands of our Lord, who was, who was so plain and so direct? And, and he wasn't mushy about this at all. You know, he didn't say, you know, I really suggest that you just don't, you kind of keep it to yourself. Jesus was plain and direct and firm. Why would the leper do this? He didn't have any ill intent. The leper didn't have any evil intent. He didn't say, oh yeah, that Jesus told me not to tell anybody. I'm going to show him. No. I think at the end of the day, his excitement, his enthusiasm, his zeal, his gratitude just overwhelmed him and he thought it okay to tell one person, then two, then 20, and then everybody he met. I think that's what happened. Not wanting to hurt Jesus, not wanting to disobey Jesus, but his zeal, his enthusiasm, overcame in his heart Jesus' commands to silence. You know, it is not our place to ever judge God's commands. It's our place to obey them. No doubt the leper, after he told the first person, no doubt he probably said to himself, I don't see the harm. Isn't Jesus here to proclaim the truth? If he's Messiah, people people need to know. No doubt he reasoned to himself that this was okay. It's not our place to ever judge God's commands. It's just our place to obey them. We say this quite frequently. If we are those who only obey the commands of God that make sense to us, then who's the real God? If obedience requires our assent to the wisdom of His commands, who's really the one in charge? True obedience is obedience that precedes understanding. Jesus says in John 7, verse 17, if it's your will to do the will of the Father, you will know whether my commands, whether my words are from the Father or not. So it's not our place to judge the rightness of His commands or the wisdom of His commands. It's our place to obey. I think the leper would have been well served, don't you, to have remembered the story of Abraham. I don't think that there's a story in Scripture that illustrates to us more powerfully the obedience to a command that doesn't make good sense. I mean, kill your son? And this from the God who told His people most clearly? We're not like those other people. We don't sacrifice our children. Furthermore, this is the child of promise. This is the, the child of your old age. This is the child of a promise. Now go and sacrifice him. But can you see how the faith of Abraham had brought him to a place where he didn't question the command? For his trust and his obedience to the God of the command superseded his need to understand. The leper's not there. So we too are in such a place as this. And we live in a world today in which we can clearly say this. The majority of those around us who claim the name of Christ, the majority now, are openly defying the clear teachings of Scripture because society deems it unwise. We're in the same place. In which we have now put ourselves in the position of being the judge of Scripture instead of Scripture being our judge. We're not in the place to judge God's commands. We're in the place to obey it. Jesus says in Luke 6.46, why do you call me Lord? And don't do what I say. That's the most elementary factor, the most elementary aspect of calling one Lord is that you do what they say. But then lastly this morning, let's just take this point to heart. And it's this. Unbridled, undirected, zeal- For God will advance a kingdom, just not God's. Unbridled and undirected zeal for God will advance a kingdom, just not God's. Look at what Paul says to the Romans in Romans 10 and verse 2. I acknowledge they have a zeal for God. I bear witness they have a great zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 27, I discipline my body to keep it under control lest I disqualify myself. Unbridled and undirected zeal for God will not serve His kingdom. God does not ask us for undirected zeal. What God asks us for is zeal that is directed by His Word. God does not ask us to have such abundant, exuberant gratitude and love for Him that we just obey what we want to obey, that we just do what we want to do. That's not what God seeks. What God seeks is the heart that has been changed and out of love and gratitude does what His Word directs. Because the direction of His Word is what guides the obedience that He seeks. It's often been compared to a train. We talked about this recently. It's often been compared to a train. You know, a train has to have at least two elements before it's going anywhere. It has to have a locomotive and it has to have tracks. So you can think of the locomotive on a train as something like our gratitude, our love for God, our enthusiasm, our zeal, but that train is not going anywhere unless it has tracks. And the tracks of the train are like the Word of God. They're like the precepts of God, the statutes of God where God says, what I want from my people is the locomotive of zeal and enthusiasm and gratitude and love directed by my word. Remember Nadab and Abihu, the unauthorized sacrifice, Aaron's sons, who thought they were serving God, who thought, well, this would be a great idea. God said, don't do this, but, but it will be a great idea that we do this anyway. Zeal for God that is not directed and guided by His word, is not effective for his kingdom. In fact, it's counter-effective for his his kingdom. The leper's problem wasn't that he wasn't grateful. The leper's problem wasn't that he didn't love Jesus, that that he wasn't zealous for the fame of Jesus' name. The leper's problem was that he considered his enthusiasm, his zealousness, something that God would bless whatever. And don't we often put ourselves in that same place? Don't we often say really all we need is the zeal and the enthusiasm? And then whatever that that enthusiasm produces, God will bless it. It's kind of like praying over a Whopper and large fries and saying, oh Lord, I just pray that you make this food nutritious for me, right? Like like God's going to just override the molecules in the food and, and make that Whopper nutritious for you. We do the same thing. What we want to do is often what we go ahead and and do and then ask God, bless this, don't we? Instead of saying, my zeal and my enthusiasm must be curbed by His Word because enthusiasm that is not directed by His Word does not serve His kingdom.